If you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. We use that each and every week. Turn over to Psalm 145. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have some place down at the ends of the rows. And uh, go, go ahead and pick one of those up. And if you don't have a Bible, take one of those home with you. That's our gift to you today, okay? If you don't know where the book of Psalms is, that's okay. It's roughly in the middle of your Bible, and it takes up a ton of pages. So if you just open to the middle and start flipping around, you'll bump into the book of Psalms, no problem. And there's always uh, no shame in using the table of contents to get there, all right? So, all right, well, um, if you're uh, new to Sedaris this week, or if you've been new in the last year, I want to welcome you to what we do every summer at Sedaris. And every summer at Sedaris, we actually go through a selection of psalms. There's a, a different selection of psalms each week, and so if you stick around for 10 or 15 years, you're going to hear every psalm preached. How cool is that, right? You're, I don't think you're going to want to miss it, so stick around. Um, that's a joke, guys. That's a joke. Uh, it's okay to laugh. Um, but we go through uh, the Psalms every summer here at Sedaris, and it's great because the Psalms are a book of prayers. They're a book of prayers. They're a book of prayers that were written uh, 500 to 1,000 years before Jesus showed up on the scene. And we talked a couple weeks ago about how these prayers are masterpieces. They're masterpieces. They are written down by people uh, who had long lives of prayer, and they're masterpieces. They are masterpieces of prayer. They wrote them down. They were so incredible and impactful that they were put to song in ancient Israel's history, and then they were sung. They're still sung today, some 3,000 years later. So they're masterpieces. And so the people of God have always looked to the book of Psalms, the prayer book, to learn how to pray much like uh, painters and sculptors have always looked to um, famous paintings and sculptings to learn how to paint or to sculpt. And the people of God are always progressing in the art of prayer in this way, okay? And so that's what the Psalms are, and that's what we're doing in them. And, and here at Sedaris, we, we like this especially because sometimes we can get interpreted as just being very intellectual, if you, see, if you saw one of our street signs that says, uh, have you considered Jesus there? A very honest question. And uh, that connotation of considering in our culture today is an intellectual one, isn't it? It's a very intellectual thing that we do, we, we consider. But really, uh, sedaris, that's the second or the last two-thirds of that word, consider. Um, it's the Latin root for this word, heavenly body. And so when we say that we consider or with heavenly body, we have in mind a consideration that goes deeper than just our brains, but all the way into our hearts. We consider Jesus with our hearts. And this is why the Psalms are great. This is why prayer is great, because in prayer, what happens is we have a bringing of our hearts to God, a bringing of our emotions, of our wills, of our desires. We bring those to God in prayer. We see that throughout the Psalms. We see the Psalms bringing some pretty intense wills, desires, and emotions to God. And so in our prayers, we do that. And what we see them encountering is that when they do that, then God's heart shows up too. All of a sudden, we see a dance between the psalmist's heart and God's heart. And in this dance where we see God's emotions, wills, and desires come out, there's a collision of hearts. And out of that collision, we see heart change come out of it, life change come out of it, purpose, meaning, joy. We see so many products of prayer come out of it. Prayer is truly a life-changing experience. Maybe you're here today and you would, you would disagree with that statement. 
maybe you'd say, ah, I'm not so sure, life-changing? I mean, maybe on some level it's therapeutic to hear yourself talk about your problems, but life-changing, meaning-altering, purpose-giving, joy-bringing, I don't know if I would associate that with prayer. Maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, I, I used to pray, but none of that happened, and so I don't really anymore. Or maybe you're here today and you're like, I, I pray, but I don't experience that. Well, it's to these questions and these thoughts that Psalm 145 speaks. It's a psalm of adoration. It's a psalm of adoration. And so let's just let it speak today, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit with one another, okay, to see uh, what's going on with prayer. All right, pick it up with me in verse 1. We're going to read this, this thing all the way through. I will extol you, my God of king. At the top it says, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and king, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears the cry, their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Isn't this beautiful? Look at David here. They, this is a very beautiful prayer. He's getting excited about who God is. He's getting excited about what God has, has done. There's lots of exclamation points to this. There's lots of huge, enormous things forever and ever. I'll do this every day. David's really excited in here. So what's wrong with us then? That's kind of the question that I'm left with. If this is David's experience of prayer, what's wrong with me if I don't experience this? I think that's a very reasonable question. What's wrong with us? And what I want to point out is this psalm, psalms of adoration and prayers of adoration, they can point out a very fundamental misunderstanding that we have when it comes to prayer. A very fundamental misunderstanding that's very easy for us to come to, and it goes something like this. Prayer is starting a conversation with God. That's it. 
Prayer is starting a conversation with God. Now, this is such a natural conclusion that we have that it often slips subtly into our subconscious, and if it lives there, it'll deaden and poison our prayers. And perhaps you're thinking, like, maybe this is a little too simple. Maybe we have actually more of a semantical issue here. But, but no, we, we actually don't, because here we see David's understanding of prayer is very, very rooted in something else. It is a continuation of a conversation with God. And we see this in verse 4 is where it comes up. Look for a repeated phrase. I'm going to emphasize it for you guys. He says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness, your works, your mighty acts, your wondrous works, your awesome deeds. David is responding to something in that he was meditating upon here. He is responding to it. You could even say that prayer for David is answering God. Prayer is answering God. And so here we see that, that David starts with a different assumption than I am starting a conversation with God, but he's saying I am answering God's works, his wondrous works, his mighty deeds, his marvelous acts. I think I mixed some of those qualifiers up. But he's saying I'm responding. Pastor Dave a few weeks ago talked about what, Psalm 116, and, and he likened God to standing on the dance floor. And he said, we're on the side of the dance floor, and God is inviting us onto the dance floor. And every step that we take towards God is one that has been invited first. When it comes to our relationship with God, God acts first, and we respond to that. And that's what's happening in this prayer of adoration. David is grounded in this notion of God's works, his mighty acts, and it's producing something beautiful, maybe even something that we're jealous of, maybe even there's something that we would covet. Don't you wish your prayers felt like this? I know I can. So this is what we're going to do. We're just going to look at, at how David got there. That's, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to, look, we're going to use this prayer to see how he got there so that we too might be able to arrive at the same uh, level of love that we see expressed here, all right? We're going to look at his formula so that we can come to the same solution, okay? That's what we're going to do. Okay, so, so the, the first place he started here, we've talked about it a little bit already, are these works. These works. Now, what is he talking about when he's talking about God's works? What is he actually talking about? Well, he actually has three big categories in mind when he's referencing God's works. Um, if you look at the verse 4 there, and it says the, the word that says works there is translated from a verbal noun in the Hebrew. Actually, they're all verbal nouns. They're all full of action. But this one is translated from the, the noun to make, simply to make. It's a very simple Hebrew word. It includes God's creation, everything God has made. Here at Sedaris, we are all about nature. We are all about nature because when we start looking at what God has made, this mighty working that he has done, we start to see God's greatness. We start to see God's beauty. 
This is probably why, uh, one of the reasons why David concluded in verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly is he to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Our prayers can start by beholding nature. When was the last time you went out in nature? We're always encouraging each other to do this because there's greatness to be found out there. It can be something just as simple as looking at a tree. I know some of my most impactful times with God have been looking at a single tree. Or it can range all the way to to watching the sunset behind an entire mountainscape with hundreds of thousands of trees on those mountains. The greatness of the Lord is on full display in creation. How can we get in contact with this? How can we start our prayers in a, as a response to that work? It means leaving our phones inside. It means walking outside. It means sitting down and looking up. We live in such a beautiful city. Many of you have moved here from the Midwest. You can't, there's not much beauty there. I'm just kidding. There's plenty of beauty there. All this, this city is surrounded by two mountain ranges, water on all sides. You just need to sit down and look up. Sit down and look up. Start your prayers. See what you discover about God. Respond to him that way. It can be profound. Some of my most profound moments of prayer have been in a response to his creation. That's the first thing that David has in mind when he's talking about his works. The second one uh, is, we, we really find it in verse 5, that wondrous works, the second part of verse 5, and the awesome deeds in verse 6. These are the Hebrew words that are used throughout the whole, the whole Old Testament so many times to refer to God's saving acts that he, used, that he did and exercised when he saved the Israelites out of Egypt. It's all over the Old Testament, these two words. Talking about God's salvation. The saving acts of God, they, they include um, God... Uh, putting the 10 plagues on the Egyptians to convince Pharaoh to let them go. They include God showing up as a pillar of fire to separate the the Israelites from the Egyptian army when they had decided, oh shoot, we have to go get them, and they were cornered against the Red Sea. They include God's mighty deeds, awesome deeds of, of parting the Red Sea and letting the Israelites walk across it. They include his mighty, awesome deeds of letting the waters crash on Pharaoh's army as they pursued they include the deeds of feeding the Israelites for 40 years, literally with bread that fell out of the sky for a million people. These are the mighty deeds of God, the mighty, mighty deeds of God. And, and these deeds of God, David has concluded, these allude to God's goodness on a, an incredible level. They also display his greatness. Who can part the sea, but they also illustrate his goodness. Because David, when he read the Torah, when he read the, these accounts, he saw Israelites that didn't deserve it. Look at verse 8, and this is his conclusion. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. You see, David says God's wondrous workings with humanity illustrate not just that he's great, although he is, but that he's good. That he is slow to anger. He'll overlook their offenses so that he can come to them and bless them and save them. And it's the same for Christians today as well. 
Jesus shows up on the scene. He comes to his creation that was created through the word of God. Everything's created through Jesus. He shows up on the scene to humanity, to us who have taken that creation. God, he created, and then he passed it off to humanity, meaning, and he said, you have dominion, and you continue to create with this creation, meaning I started creation, you guys finish it. And the way that we finished it was we've taken this creation to rebel against him, to hurt each other, to hurt ourselves. And Jesus shows up to us and says, I'll die for you so we can make it right. You see that goodness? You see that slow to anger, that, that patience, that steadfast love? The Lord is good to all. Now, this is still abstract in some ways. How do we get this into our prayers? How do we get this into our prayers? And... Um, We have to do what David's doing here because David himself is separated by this great Egyptian uh, salvation event by 400 years. He didn't see it. He didn't experience it himself, but he read about it and he heard about it. This is one of the many reasons why Christians over the millennia, uh, leaders and even even just common day saints would say, hey, when you pray, use the Bible Pray with the Bible. These two go hand in hand. And it means something a little bit more than just reading the Bible and then praying. It means something a little bit deeper than that. It means a little bit more than reading through the Sermon on the Mount and getting a list of what Jesus says to do and not to do. Uh, Spoiler alert, you're not going to attain it. It's pretty difficult. You probably fall short every day. But it, it means to use your imagination Our imaginations are a gift from God, a very useful instrument and tool that he's given us. Now, we can use it for some pretty awful things, but the imagination that God has given us, we can use to encounter his wondrous works in the Bible. And the Sermon on the Mount, don't just read through it. Bring a blanket. Lay it down in the field. Sit with the crowds and listen to Jesus. Question, well, how is this person teaching what these teachers have taught for hundreds of years way differently and with a ton of authority? The Last Supper, don't just uh, be a, a passive onlooker. Pull up a cushion to the table. Sit down. Sense the tension in the room as Jesus says he's about to die. Sense it as he says, one of you is going to betray me. Sense the tension as Judas steps up and walks out right then. Eat the bread with him. Drink the cup with him. Lounge there as he prays for you. Follow him with his disciples to the Garden of Eden. Feel the cool grass under your feet. The last comforting service that Jesus would ever experience before, or that he would experience before his death. Follow him to the cross. But at the garden, before you go, look and and watch him pray. Ask God, hey, I don't want to do this. Watch him sweat drops of blood as he concludes that your life is more important than his. Follow him to the cross. Look, kneel before the cross and look at him labor to breathe. Listen to him express forgiveness and a promise to a robber that he's going to be in paradise with him that day. Listen to him ask God to forgive them, to forgive you, for you do not know what you're doing. This is how we imagine. We use our imaginations to get there in the Bible. When we pray this way, 
we can experience the powerful, wonderful works of God. This isn't taking too much liberty with the text. This is experiencing the wonderful works of God for yourself so that you can adore God afresh. Now, perhaps you would think, you know, we're way too separated from these people of thousands of years ago uh, to be able to actually put ourselves in that scenario and interpret it meaningfully. But I want to read you this quote by a famous preacher in the 50s, actually, or actually 70s. His name is Daniel Bauman. He said this, we are very much like the people of the ancient world. It's only in some superficial thoughts, rational beliefs, and mental moods that we are different. In all of the basic heart realities, we are the same. We stand before God exactly as people in every age have stood before him. We have all experienced David's guilt, the doubting of Thomas, Peter's denial of Jesus, and perhaps even the kiss of the betrayer Judas. We are linked across the centuries by the realities and ambiguities of the human soul. And I would add that we're linked across the centuries by the realities and ambiguity of putting faith in a great and good creator. Use your imagination. Get there. Experience the work of the Lord for yourself. All right, so that's the second line of works that he has in mind here. And the third one are God's individual, powerful, good acts that show up in people's lives all the time. And uh, we know that, that David has uh, this in mind because he actually saw a lot of these in his life. Uh, he, he may be reflecting on the time when he squared off with Goliath and God showed up. He may be reflecting upon uh, the time when Saul was chasing him with his men and God showed up. And we know that he has these individual acts in mind because he actually speaks of God reaching to individuals, not just in a corporate salvific sense, but in individual, tangible ways in verse 14 is where it starts. The Lord upholds all who are falling. Someone who's teetering over God comes by and holds them up straight. And raises up those who are bowed down. This is the Hebrew. It's clear that it's someone who's fallen down, that God leans down to pick them up again. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire. That's the hunger desire of every living thing. You satisfy the hunger of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, or you could translate it, uh, he causes his favor to shine on those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. See, these are the individual powerful actions of God. And I included that last little phrase there because there's a little phrase like this in each and every one of our psalms. You'll be reading the psalm, and it's beautiful, and there's a bunch of love and desire and promise of this great, good, powerful God, and then you have, but all the wicked he will destroy. It's a little bit like uh, eating an amazing salad with a ton of ingredients, and then you come across a worm, right? It's like, oh, what is that doing there? But there's even a piece of this second part of verse 20 that's covered in slow to anger, gracious and merciful. 
You can't see it in the English, but in the Hebrew, all these verbs are present participles. You could read it like this. The Lord is upholding those who are falling. He's raising up those who are bowed down. He's giving people his food. He's satisfying their hunger. He's nearing to those. He's fulfilling their desire. He's hearing their cry. He's preserving. But this last verb, he will destroy, is just a future tense verb. It's very different. And this deviation from the pattern suggests that, hey, God is slow to anger, abounding in love, merciful, gracious. That's way off in the distance. But right now, he's displaying his works, his individual works, his corporate works, and his creation to humanity that they might turn to him. That's what's going on here. And so when we talk about these individual works, the question then becomes, what has God done in your life? What are the ways that he's reached out to you and and supported you before you've fallen over? What are the ways that that he's helped you get back up again? Because this is a call to remember and meditate upon the works of of the Lord that you've seen in your own life time and time and time again. And this is one of the reasons why community for the Christian is so, so, so important. Because we don't just uh, have the opportunity to, to witness our own, the, the ways that God has displayed his works in our lives and community. But we get to see it in other people's lives as well. This is why we have our fellowship groups. About a month ago, we, uh, in my fellowship group, we just had a story time. What has God done in your life? We did that for the whole time. It was incredible. Group leaders, have you thought of doing that? Just what has God done in your life? It's an amazing time where we could turn our hearts to adoration of the works of the Lord. We love God more because of how we see him working in others' lives. If, if you guys could just know the ways that, that God picked my wife up even when she had fallen down through no fault of her own, it's amazing. So these are the three ways. These are the three works that, that we can really reference when we're thinking about the works of the Lord and we're meditating upon them creation, huge salvific events through the cross of Jesus and the individual ways that God has stepped into our lives and done things that can only be described and explained by his power and his goodness in our lives. Now, these are the things that have brought David to a point of incredible adoration of God incredible adoration of God. He is loving God because he's reflecting upon these things. He, didn't, he doesn't see his prayer as, as starting a conversation, but he's responding to the, the ways that God has shown up. And in verse 10, we really see the, like where, how this adoration starts to work out. Verse 10, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. This is cool. The works of God, we have a personification. They're, they're praising God. Creation praises God. His salvation events, praising God. The individual works in your life, they praise God. But then that's paralleled with, and the saints shall bless your name. David did something really clever here. He's saying that the people of God, people of faith in him, the saints, they're new creations. They are God's works themselves. Here we have a powerful thing where David's saying, hey, you are the works of the Lord, and so you praise God. 
Whenever the work of the Lord shows up, praise results is what David says. And God's works force us to conclude that this happens because of how good and how great we see God to be. In verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. Here we have a powerful God talking about his power, his greatness, his dominion. But something's a little bit strange in the context of this psalm because we really conceive of and have a ton of examples of rulers that use their power for self-preservation, use their power for self-wealth. This is how we see the rulers of the world and and the CEOs of this huge corporation, right? They're trying to, to capitalize upon the crowd so that they can buy another vacation house. They're trying to capitalize upon the crowd so that they can have more power themselves and inflate their egos. But here in this psalm, we have a king who uses his power for the goodness of the masses. How great is this king? Isn't this the king that we all want The one that stoops down, comes to earth and says, your life is more valuable than mine. I'll die on the cross for you. How great is this king? When we truly come to this conclusion after witnessing these works that, that display a great and a really good king, there's nothing but adoration is appropriate for us. I'm not saying you should be at a, that you should adore God, but it just happens. Look at verse 7. They shall pour forth, this is the, the people of God, the fame of your abundant goodness. Pour forth is the Hebrew verb for bubbling up. It was used of underground springs that, that would just come up from the ground. They'd bubble up. There's no stopping these things. If you plug it up here, it'll start coming out over here. There's a bubbling up that's happening, of adoration, of of the praise of God, of the fame, that's kingdom language, of your abundant goodness, a bubbling up. This is one of the reasons why I love being around people who are our new Christians. I love being around people who are new Christians because Egypt wasn't that long ago for them. It wasn't that long ago. They have a very clear and recent example of how dark it was, how God was great and good to them, and a fresh experience of how great life is now. People have been Christians for a short time. Oh, they're so fun to be around. There's bubbling. There's adoration. We had the chance to to meet again with the people who had been baptized this week, and there was just bubbling adoration. It's such a fun conversation that we could have. And I want you guys to be able to see it. Uh, we just completed the video this week of our baptism service uh, that we did a, a month ago. Dave will pull it up here. And I want you to see it so that you can glorify God and ad- adore God for his work in their lives and use it as a, as a stepping stone to get back to the same Never work that God's done in your life. Go ahead, Dave. You're good. Cut me off. Yeah, you're good. He'll get it. Don't worry.
Joshua, Nate, Tracy, Tim. Here's what's happening. Your faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus in all matters, has led to a second life, a new world in which you now live, one with God close at hand. You will get an inheritance. Whose inheritance? Not yours. You get Jesus's inheritance for eternity. And that inheritance is imperishable. Nothing can take it away. It is undefiled, meaning it is perfect. It's not corrupted by this world. It cannot be corrupted. It cannot be diminished. It cannot be altered. It is yours for eternity, and it is unfading, everlasting. There's no planned obsolescence. It goes on and on and on forever. All of God's eternal life is given to you in full because of your union with Jesus Christ. I just want to say thank you so much to my family and to my friends for, for making it out here, and uh, especially to Sedaris Church. Um, I'm here to get baptized today because I want to fully commit to leading a, a righteous life. I've tasted the fruits of this world, and I'm here to tell you that God's fruits are the sweetest. I need to make a difference in this world. I can't just say I, I have an occupation for a living and be happy with that. There's got to be a greater purpose to life. So um, here I am to witness to you guys that um, I might still mess up. I am still young. I am still human. But without um, help from each other, you're never going to make it through. God intended for us to help each other. For starters, I, I can't believe how thankful I am for, for the opportunity to repent of my sins. And thus far in my life, I've, I've retained a lot of my Christian upbringing, but um, as part of my, you know, my initial baptism as an infant, I've uh, really started to understand that Christians are made and they are not born. The reason why I want to get baptized today is just to mark my new faith and my new walk with Jesus. I was gone for a long time. There's a lot of people here today that have prayed for me over the years. And I'm uh, so happy you're here today. It moves me to tears because I've had a long road of drug addiction. My higher power always was God, but it was never Jesus Christ. And this time around, I have a strength that is not my own. I'm, I'm powerless over drugs. And God, though, and Jesus is all powerful. It's, it's hard to keep a straight face or to remain emotionless as you see that adoration. It's so difficult. That, that's impactful. You see, this is David's heart in Psalm 145. You heard it. You saw it. It's, it's amazing. And when we've been Christians for a while, that original bubbling up of, of who God is and what he's done really who God is because of what we see him do. That, that we just get further and further away from Egypt and it can be replaced by bubbling of superficial loves. That glass great movie we saw, the last great Netflix series we binged, the last great food we ate. Psalm 145 is, is a check 
a call to, to ask, hey, what are you adoring? Because they're likely the works that you're interacting with the most and meditating on the most. Now, um, what's at stake here? What's at stake here is the question. Because uh, this is wonderful, it's true. Um, What's great that Psalm 145 does for, for us is it shows directly how our adoration makes a difference in the world. The adoration of these four people who were baptized on, on Sunday made a difference in this room just now. <clears throat> and it's right there in verse 4. This is what David says adoration does. This is how it makes a difference. He says, One generation shall commend your works to another. Commend. What does it mean to commend? Well, um, every now and again, uh, someone at Sedaris will ask me to, to write a letter of recommendation. Recommendation. You see how it's right in there? Recommendation for them, either for a school program or for a job that they're applying for. And it's, it's an absolute honor to be able to do that. I love uh, commending, recommending our people for influence in the world. It's like a huge joy of mine. But and I take it really, really seriously. I know Dave does too when people ask him. But, but how do I do that? Well, what I do is I look at the, uh, the things that I've grown, that I've seen them do. I look at all their works. And I compile all of those and, and I uh, come to some conclusions about who God has made that person to be. And then I take that and I work it into a page-long bragging argument that they're the best person for that position, that they will outstrip and outpace anybody else who would ever apply for it. That's a letter of recommendation. I unashamedly do that. I don't send it to them because I'm so unashamedly bragging about them that I think it'd just be awkward if they read it, you know? Like that, that's how intense and how serious it is to me. I take it really seriously. Um, and it's, this is the notion of commending that's present here in, this, in, in verse 4. There's a, the notion that, that when we truly see God for what he's done, and we truly uh, see exactly um, who he is as good and great, that this adoration comes up and we start bubbling and we're commending God. We're putting together uh, almost a bragging arguments as to why he outstrips and outpaces any other God out there on the God market. See that? But here's what's interesting. This isn't a command. Don't read it as a command. If this isn't present in your life, the conclusion here isn't I need to, need to go out and I should be doing this. David doesn't say that you should do this. Look at it. One generation shall commend your works to another. He says it'll just happen. He says it'll just happen. And present in that statement, and that's throughout the psalm, if you, when we read it through, there's, they shall pour forth in verse 7. They shall speak in verse 6. Present in that is an understanding of God's works, that they are going to work whatever he wants to accomplish through them in the world, that these works are effectual, that they cause people to, to follow him. They're going to make uh, people come to conclusions about who he is and come to joy and adoration of them to the point where they're going to commend him out there in the world. This would be a very arrogant statement if we didn't have 3,000 years of history to prove it to be true. 
Because over 3,000 years, we've seen the gospel go from one culture to spill into another, to another, to another, to almost every culture in the world the gospel is spilled in. And it's gone down from each generation within all those cultures. This is true. This is just true. This has happened for 3,000. I did the math. If you assume a 25-year generation gap, which is really conservative, that's only like within the last couple hundred years, they're having babies like every 15 years back in the day. Anyways, if you assume a 25-year gap, this has happened 120 times. It's going to happen 121st time. The question is, who's going to be a part of it? Who's going to be a part of it? The people who reflect upon the works of the Lord. How does this work? Um, A little while ago, one of my good, good friends uh, recommended, they bubbled about, they were uh, adoring a movie called Dunkirk. Anybody here seen the movie of Dunkirk? The movie of Dunkirk recounts a single event in World War II in a very confusing way, uh, for those of you who've seen it, (laughs) a very confusing way. Um, And and, uh, he was just bubbling about this, and so I was like, well, I guess I'll, I'll check it out, you know? Like, he says it was good, he loved it. I guess I'll go and I'll check it out. And so I went to the Amazon.com. I don't know if you guys have heard of this, Amazon. You can rent movies on Amazon as well as, as buy anything you could ever want. And um, rented it for like five bucks or something and spent a couple hours to watch it. I, I didn't really like it, but this, that's not the point. The point is that at a personal cost to myself, I gave it a shot because he was bubbling about it. You see that? This is how the mission of God works. So many times people will accuse the Christian church of just telling people that they should be out there evangelizing. You should be out there talking to people about Jesus. You should be doing all that. But in reality, this is something that just happens. And this is something that just happens. And when it happens, people's ears perk up. They're like, oh, this person is loving God. This person is commending God in a very interesting way here. I think that I could give a Sunday morning to checking that out. Personal cost to myself. I think I, I, think I could do that based on how much they love it. It might be for me too, who knows? Because I think that people in our culture, yes, they want to be loved. I think that's true, but I think that's only one side of it. I think people, every human, wants to love something significant. I think that's what we all want to. And when you show that you're loving something significant, people want to be a part of that. That's why the Seahawks Stadium fills up eight times a year. It's only eight times. But they're talking about it 365 days of the year. People want to love something significant. And so this is why really when we see, when we truly see the works of God and come to the conclusion that God is good and he's great, he's this powerful ruler that uses his powers to to work his goodness here in the world, bubbles us up in adoration. We go out into the world and it works. People come to know Jesus. I didn't know if I was going to share this illustration because I just shared an illustration about Dave Dunkirk. He's my good friend. But Dave is a guy that is full of affection. Many of you don't know this about Dave, um, but he uh, he comes through on every single personality test we take. We like to take personality tests so we can understand each other. Every single one that he comes out on, he is an introvert to the ninth degree, the tenth degree. 
From zero to 100, Dave's a 100% introvert. Now that probably surprises you. Because he's always around, he's always talking to people, but this is what Dave knows. He has experienced the work of God, and he knows that he just, if he just opens his mouth, this is the work of the Spirit in him, to bubble about it, to bubble about God and how he loves his people and how he loves his church, he knows that he, if he just opens his mouth to let the affections come out, sometimes he doesn't even know what's going to come out. He doesn't know what he's going to say sometimes. If he just opens his mouth, that you're going to want to be a part of it. That's true. That's why a lot of us are here tonight. There's a danger in that. You, you can't let your affection for God happen through Dave's affection of God. Eventually, you need to figure out how to bubble over yourself. You need to behold the work of God yourself. That's why we're here each and every Sunday. There's, there's one and a half hours where we get to do that, where we declare the works of the Lord through the word, where Hannah, Galen, our other leader, Jordan, comes up here and, and, and we proclaim the works of the Lord through song. But it's not enough. We need to meditate upon the works of the Lord throughout the week that we might bubble over. We, we, we need to brush into to worship experiences, experiences with nature that we might bubble over because when we do that, it works. The disciple that's adoring God is the most powerful apologetic for God. Do you know what I mean by that? Apologetic is a word that's used as an argument for the fact that God exists, that he's great, that he's good, that he's beautiful, that he loves us. All other arguments pale in comparison to a bubbling disciple who may even be saying things that are a little bit off here or there, argumentative, like with the logic-wise. It's the most effective thing that's out there. So I'd encourage you, as you go into your week, don't try to, and you think about talking to people about Jesus, don't worry about their objections. Just talk about what he's done. Lean into it in your personal times of prayer and meditation. Start here. See your responses. Answering God. This is how the great saints have understood prayer for a long time. Answer prayer is answering God. That's what it's going to take for God's movement to go into this city. And I'm confident that his works with David, I'm, I, I just link myself to David's confidence here, that God's works are enough to do that. We're confident in it. That's why we're here. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we come before you recognizing everything that you've done to get us to this point, starting with the creation of everything and the creation of us starting with the new creation that you worked in our souls, God, and continuing with the ways that you've reached into our lives to, to save us, to support us, to preserve us, to feed us, to guide us, to hear us, to answer us, God. Lord, we're humbled by it. We, we don't know why you would look down upon these people who have rebelled against you to love them and empower them to love you and so we respond today in adoration as we sing these next three songs about your greatness, your goodness, and praise. God, I just pray that, that you would give us hearts of adoration. Show us your works afresh. God, I, I pray for my friends today and, and for anybody that's walking away from this uh, feeling misunderstood. God, I pray that you would just know my heart for them is love. We just don't have enough time to talk about all the qualifications that, that your word needs for each and every individual, Lord. But I pray that, that you would give them the, the courage to, to reach out to Dave or myself to talk through these issues if, if they take issue with them because we want them to experience your life. 
We don't consider it as an affront or, or wouldn't be defensive against them, God. Just, we love these people just as you do. We hope to. We could never, actually. So, God, we, we just praise you today. I pray you be with the band in our time right now as we, we worship you for who you are. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.